this week, we have been taken over by Predators. Yes, we'll be saying a prayer with Amber Mid-Thunder, the devout star of Predators sequel Prey. Wait, have I got that spelling right? Are we praying with her or praying with Pray him? for Amber Mid-Thunder. And maybe this we is are. the long-awaited Predator Road to Perdition crossover. That's it. And we only have the director of the original film and also one of the better Christmas movies, John McTiernan, joining yes. us to talk about his stellar career, as well as the usual movie news, nonsense and reviews on the only movie podcast that is currently planning a heist of the Warner Brothers vault. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Our beloved leader, the great and powerful Chris, is off on a mysterious voyage this week. But fear not, because I'm still joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning that they are classified as weapons that you are not allowed to bring on planes. That's true. First up is our very sweetest serial killer, Ben the Corinthian Travis. How are you doing? Hello, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going on a flight next week, so I'm going to have to sort out my weapons situation. Yeah, well, as a serial killer, you presumably have no compunction in lying on that question of, do you contain any of the following and that has your face? And you're just like, yep, no, none of those. I do famously contain me. Well, so I can't have noticing, Ben, that your glasses are not opaque. Therefore, we can see that you have teeth for eyes. Mm, it's true. It's my new look for 2022. <laughs> you, you like that? You yeah. like- yes, yeah. I can I can neither confirm nor deny that both Helen and I have been gorging on Sandman <laughs> episodes last week. For more on that, listen to the Pilot TV podcast available on Monday. I was going to set that up. I was going to do that for oh, you. Oh, we'll get to that, Helen, because you're no, on no. the Pilot TV podcast this oh, week. So, yeah, yeah so you um, have to. But yes, I, I was gonna I was gonna be kind and gentle and mention the pilot you. James Roderick Crowley Dyer. <laughs> but uh but now I'm not sure I want to. Anyway, Sandman's out this week and I'm super excited. It is super exciting. It's really good. Yeah. I mean it isn't I don't I mean know it's yet. embargo, it's so embargo, we can't possibly so we can't say whether it's really good or not. Oh uh, confusing. Uh okay, but we have time now for questions as we get into this Can week I now. ask questions? No. Oh. Now, a lot of the questions were about Batgirl. We're going to get to that in the mm. news section. Fear, fear not. But we thought we'd start with, in Chris's absence, some very important sports news, because I know how much you guys love the sports ball. And um, Steve, hear me raw at heart underscore raw on Twitter asks, after the Lionesses showed the England men's team how it's done, in which movie would you replace a male lead with a female to make it better? Bonus points for naming the person to replace them and choosing a new character name. I mean, I can't believe Chris thought I would bring my radical feminist agenda (laughs) to the podcast today. (laughs) The notion. This, of course, James, is a reference to the fact that the England ladies team won the Euros this week, which is a big football tournament. Yes, I turned on this sporting event and was very disappointed to see a lack of actual lionesses mauling people on the pitch. So I turned it I, off. I know. I, I'll be honest, as a as a, a Northern Irish feminist, I was I was not quite sure how to feel about the whole thing. Uh, I came down on the side of yay, but it was it was a close run thing. I was also kind of hoping that they'd win on penalties against Germany just for the lols, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we don't get everything we want. Anyway, so a movie where you would place a f- male lead with a female lead. Is it, is it a massive cop-out to say Predator and I'd replace it with a female lead and for the actor I'd go with Amber Midthunder? Would that work? That would be a massive cop-out. <laughs> right, okay. Of, of Good an to know. unprecedented scale. Would it also be a cop-out to say uh, I would love some kind of, I don't know, Batman movie, but instead of Batman you have some <laughs> kind of Batgirl. I think that would just be a really cool thing that I would like to see either in the cinemas or on streaming or just at all at anywhere. All. Mm. And and who from one of your favourite musicals would you cast as this Batgirl? So weird that you pick a musical, but if we're going down that route, I mean, what, last year was In the Heights? Uh, I don't know. Let's just pick out of nowhere. Leslie Grace from In the what? Heights. 
would be super fun as Batgirl. But I mean, I can't imagine us ever seeing that movie. No, I, I sadly can't either. Uh, yeah, that is uh, that is quite a... It's funny, like, people, like you get a lot of... I mean, I know I should never say people when actually what I mean is Twitter and Twitter, which is of course in no way representative of people. But you know, like there's all this sort of like backlash when you go on about sort of gender flip casting and whatnot, but it's just like it works so well when it works so well. And of course I refer to Jenna Coleman as uh, Joanna Constantine in The Sandman. Honestly, that's my current answer. Oh, she's so good. She's so good. No, this is coming out on Friday, so we can say this. It's after that's the, true. It's after that's true. We're after the embargo. Yeah. So, um, but she, so they, I think they didn't really have the rights to all of the DC characters who appear in the Sandman comics. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, Sandman's a comic written by Neil Gaiman with art by uh, Dave McKean and others. Uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic comment. A comic about the personification of dreams uh, and also like all of human history and storytelling. Mm. Um, it has superheroes, it has anthropomorphic personifications, it has, you know, time, different times, different eras, different realities. It's wonderful. Um, but one of the things it has in the comics is John Constantine. And they clearly didn't have the rights to him or several other DC characters or didn't want to get into trying to negotiate the rights for him or several other DC characters. So they've cast Jenna Coleman as both the present day Joanna Constantine and the historic Lady Joanna Constantine in the show. And I have to say, she's bloody brilliant. Isn't she's got she? the attitude down mm. pat. Is she Scouts? No, she's not. And that was one thing I thought. I thought, and I kind of, you know, I, I'm not going to comment on whether or not it was a good move or not, but I was about, that's a deliberate choice because he is none more Scouse, famously Scouse. Um, also, the thing that throws me is obviously they called her Joanna Constantine. And I've always said Constantine because obviously the film with Kennedy was Constantine. Mm -hmm. But by all accounts, and I, so I may have mentioned this and then got roundly shouted down by people who say that in the comics, it is abundantly, it was repeated numerous times that it is constant time rhymes with rhyme. Uh, <laughs> because apparently that's the more common British pronunciation, whereas Constantine is more of an American thing, which is why the Kennery character is Constantine. You say common British pronunciation as if I've ever met anyone in my life called Constantine. It's a fair point. <laughs> I see what you're saying. But what about the Emperor? Obviously you talk about the Emperor. Emperor the Palpatine. No, Constantine. <laughs> oh, heathens. You know, he brought Christianity to the Roman Empire. Great. Good for him. Son Good of for him. Good for him. Or, or not the opposite of that, well, if that was yeah, a bad Well, thing. that's an interesting question, which we will leave to the historians, <laughs> yeah, obviously. That's for another, for another episode. But uh, yeah. So what, so what else would we do, though? Like, would we do, you know, could we recast Joker? Could we gender swap Joker? They have in the comics. It's been done. That is true. Joker. 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 <laughs> Joker. Hey, isn't that no. what Folie de is going to be? French. French Joker. French joke, French musical Joker. Yes. Um, mm, yeah, well, but then I enjoyed, so I was re-watching randomly Loki this week uh -huh. and I was re-watching that and I just think Sylvie is such a brilliant, if someone asked me basically, do you prefer Loki or do you prefer Sylvie? And I was like, that's a really fucking hard question because Sylvie is so, so, so good. But then so is Hiddles as our Loki. So yeah. I, I'm I'm still a little bit, I think the answer of course is Alligator Loki. But uh, obviously, but she's really, really good and I think that particular gender swap works so brilliantly. Yeah. Because she's not just female Loki, like she's an entirely new, rounded, separate character with her own history and her own personality. I tell you who I would semi-seriously quite like is somebody at some point is presumably going to take over the mission movies, right? I would I would be interested in a Ellie Hunt kind of a character. I mean, look, if we're gender swapping films, like Angelina Jolie has form in being a kick-ass spy. She does. Salt. I would quite like to see a sort of Angelina Jolie-led Mission Impossible film, for example, if we are having to gender swap films, as the question has 
as requested. Yes. Is there somebody, though, who is like a sheer action maniac on the... T- I mean, nobody else is on the Tom Cruise action no maniac one's on level. The t- but then he wasn't before he started making mission mm. movies. He has made himself the action movie maniac that he has now become, or something. Maybe Rebecca Ferguson takes on hey. some of that action mania and just has has seen what is possible, the insane things that they do on those movies, and and could pick up that battle. Yeah. What about like a buddy movie? Because I feel like we don't get enough. We get a lot of like, quote unquote, strong female leads. We don't have enough female friendship movies for me. And I would quite like a sort of bad boys, bad girls movie. Yeah. You probably wouldn't call it that because they would have a whole other connotation. But. What was the Melissa McCarthy Sandra Bullock? Was it Cop Out? Cop uh, In? The, the Heat. Heat. The Heat. <laughs> wow, I didn't know what that was called at all, <laughs> did I? Uh, no, uh, Cop Out. Isn't that a Stallone film? No, um, that's, the, that's the Kevin Smith. I don't know Tracy what I'm talking Morgan. about. Oh, we, yes, that's the one. We, we don't speak of that film. Okay. okay. <laughs> I don't think he Let's never speak of that. The Heat. Yeah, so the, I think they had, a, they had a touch of that, didn't they, in The Heat? I know, but not, I want the full Michael Bay treatment. I'm yeah. not talking about a comedy. Yeah. I'm not a comedy. Full Michael Bay, sunset, spinning camera work, big explosions. explosions. Yeah. Like, who do you go with? Who is the equivalent there? Well, just before we jump in on names, if you were going to call the film Bad Girls, you could do, obviously, Bad Boys, they used the song, Bad Mm. Boys, Bad Boys, what are you going to do? Bad Girls, the MIA song Bad Girls, which is an absolute banger, is right there. So I am actually on board with keeping that title because you've got to have a tie-in song. That that does work. That does work really well. Okay. I'm thinking like a a Tessa Thompson. I'm thinking like a Mm. Lupita Nyong'o. I'm thinking like cool people. Or even like a, um, I don't know. I feel like there's something there that we can find. At the risk of sounding like her personal publicist, I would shoo up Amber Midthunder for this as well. Ooh. I mean, we're going we're gonna to get there, but when you see a film like Prey and you see a performance and you're mm. like, wow, this person has just arrived and I can't wait to see what they do next. Yeah. yeah. She's very much in that space. She's she very much. I want her in space. I want her <laughs> on, you know, juries or, or in courtrooms. I yeah. want her just like leading. Jane movies. Austen. All of it. Jane, why the fuck not? Mm. Let's do it. She's already played a great 1700 set character. You know, just Pride and Prejudice and Predators. Years. Try saying that fast. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice and Predators. I mean, Hollywood, it's a completely original idea that no one's ever done anything <laughs> like before. There's no reason it can't work. <laughs> okay, I think that's probably Sense enough and of that. Sensibility and Sandworms. I'm listening, to be honest. <laughs> Do you have more or is that it? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. I, uh, in a way, aren't all the Dune books I Sense mean, and Sensibility and Sandworms? Yeah, a little bit, mm. a little bit. Okay, we'll work on it. Okay. Okay, if you would like to get your question read out on the Empire Podcast and treated with the same level of dignity, <laughs> forethought and consideration as uh, Steve Raw got, then please do uh, drop us a line. Let's be honest, it's on Twitter at Empire Magazine, hashtag Empire Podcast, or we won't see it. Or of course, you can wait until Chris's panic shout out on a Thursday or Wednesday and just email him then. Okay, enough of our blether. I think it's time for our first guest. Let's add some class to these proceedings. Now, just last week, our Chris Hewitt had the chance to speak to the great John McTiernan, the director of one of the all-time great runs of action cinema, think Predator, Die Hard, and my beloved Hunt for Red October. McTiernan was in town for the inaugural London Action Film Festival, and here are some highlights from their conversation. So please do enjoy. We are delighted to be joined by the great John McTiernan. How are you, sir? Fine. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thank you for asking. Uh, so last night was a screening of, of Die Hard here in London, where people were wearing Santa hats. Apparently, yes. Yeah. Yes. What was that like for you? Are you well, I take it, have you been following the 
is Die Hard Christmas movie debate, which is just... I don't know that it's a debate. Somebody asked me about it the first time a couple of years ago, and I have always had long-winded, silly answers about it. So, Because uh. <laughs> I would say that the movie Set a Christmas is a Christmas movie. I mean, I don't see how there's a debate about this. Well, also, it's, you know, it's not for us to say. It's for people. It's for the audience to say. If the audience decides they want to make it a Christmas movie, it's a Christmas movie. Um, mm. It turns out that way. It wasn't intended as a Christmas movie, although the fact that it, that it well, it was deliberately built around Christmas, mm-hmm. but, but not, not intended to be a Christmas movie. Um, but the fact that it was a Christmas movie had a lot to do with, you know, because it, it's, it's actually from a distance you look at, it's politically pretty strident. And the only reason that survived was that um, the people who in the studio who would have stopped that were deceived because they thought it was just an action movie about a Christmas party that goes wrong. Um, <laughs> so you, you snuck things in under the wire. Uh, in a word, yes. <laughs> Which is something that you've been doing all the way through your career. I mean, it was something that you did in, in Predator as well, for example. You have that moment where, they, uh, where the uh, Dutch and his team level this forest, which is this wild commentary on over-the-top machismo. Exactly. Um, and it came from that. I was getting um, a lot of uh, flack from the studio, well, from one particular executive, um, saying, well, you have to have more shots of uh, guns firing. And it just pissed me off. And ultimately, I learned that he was he was really fetishizing the image of the gun barrel and white smoke coming out of it. I mean, it was really creepy. Um but but at the time he had enough political power to constantly be getting me in trouble. And <laughs> I finally said to the studio, "Look, okay, you want more pictures of guns? I will give you pictures of guns. I will give you so much gunfire that that you just can have the orgasm you're itching for." <laughs> and um, and uh, then we can stop this nonsense. All right. And and I set the place and the way and, and deliberately did it in a way that the first words that happened after they spent five minutes leveling the jungle is a guy comes running back in and says, we hit nothing. Okay. <laughs> so the guns, the guns accomplished nothing. That was, you know, what I fatuously thought was my moral compromise on the on the thing um that i had i had saved myself morally by putting that in the studios were hell i still are i suppose uh, um turning out gun pornography um and it always bothered me so i took and that particular scene then became a, you know, it's a staple of action movies. You know, that they blaze away for five minutes, whatever. Mm-hmm. So we had to put it in Die Hard after that. They spent five minutes blazing away at all the gun, the, the glass, yep. right? Yep. Okay. And then Joel Silver put it into, it's in all of the Matrixes. You know, there's this scene where for five minutes, everybody shoots every gun they can find, blowing up stuff. But the way it, it actually came, the grandfather of all of those scenes of blowing up stuff with guns, uh, 
was me trying to get the studio off my ass about um, gun pornography. And I said, okay, I will give you, I will make up a scene where I'll just give you pictures of guns blazing. Um, And that made them happy. And I did it and got away with it. And then they stopped talking about it. (laughs) Was that something you were shooting down in the jungle? And I imagine the tendrils of the studio weren't as able to reach down there as easily as they would have been had you been shooting in, in L.A. So you were, relatively speaking, on your own. Um, the tendrils of the studio are a little more... <laughs> are a little stronger and farther reaching than you imagine. Okay. How, how do they manifest themselves? How, you know, would they, oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. y- you know, everything is reported, everybody, blah, 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 blah. It's the only problem significantly that you have. You know, we were lucky then. We had a... Larry Gordon was the head of the studio as a filmmaker. He knew what the hell what he was doing. And mm-hmm. um, the next one was Die Hard, and that was um, Leonard Goldberg, and he was a filmmaker. He knew what he was doing, and he was a very decent man to work for. Um, the place where you get in trouble is when the head of the studio doesn't know what the, is not a filmmaker and doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, mm-hmm. um, and they destroy movies. Uh, there was one guy who. At Paramount after that, when I was making Red October, and a studio asked me to go to, oh, someplace where there's a marketing convention and help them sell it. And while I was out of town, this son of a bitch marched into the cutting room and ordered the editors to recut the movie as if it was Top Gun 2. Wow. He was going to somehow turn submarines into airplanes. I don't know what the hell, but he was going to make a name for himself out of that. Uh huh. So what did you do? Nothing. I just went to the heads of the studio. It was, was uh, Ned Tannen, uh-huh. who was a real filmmaker. And I just said, look, I, I don't know what to do here. But I can only imagine what, you know, what's his name who made, made The Godfather would do if he discovered that somebody had gone to the cutting room and completely recut the movie over, the, over a weekend. Uh, what would he do? And, and Jesus. And so I didn't, I didn't throw anything. I wasn't, didn't act upset. I just quietly said, guys, what, what's going on here? Did you see his cut, John? No. Okay. You just heard that it was not good. Well, I just, just discussed it with the editors. Yeah. And the poor guys, they didn't know what to do. This guy who represents the studio walks in Jesus. and starts giving them orders. Jesus. Makes them work for the whole weekend doing stuff that they didn't understand. Um, that's crazy because especially when you're coming off. I mean, looking back at the at your early career, as you get as you establish yourself as a director, so you make Nomads initially, and very quickly move on to Predator as well. And then mm-hmm. Predator hits. Die Hard comes along fairly quickly after that as well, and Die mm-hmm. Hard's a huge hit. Now, Die Hard, you know, just being on the outside looking in, you would think that Die Hard would have made you bulletproof to an extent. So when you when you start making Hunt for Red October, that a studio executive won't be able to do that. Is, is that just an illusion from the outside about directorial power? Oh, yeah. I mean, it gets easier, but, but, uh, uh, but the basic nature of things is the same. What happens is the people who are shooting at you just get to be bigger. <laughs> <laughs> they get bigger guns. <laughs> so, so that early streak of your, your career, John, is really 
Really interesting. So you write and direct Nomads. Is that a film that you look back on fondly, or was that very much a learning experience for you? It was completely a learning experience. It's it's a quite silly, poorly made movie. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen it recently? No. Uh, I, I can't. Uh, there's a long period after I finish a movie that I can't look at it. Because um, all I see is, is the mistakes I made. Okay. Um, and, and it becomes a quite difficult experience. Once it's far enough away, you get the idea. Um, How far are we talking? Are we talking? Because uh, you're about to go to a... 20 a years Q, or so. 20 years, because there's at a least. Q&A of Predator I looked at, on I Sunday. I looked at uh, Die Hard about 10 years ago, five years ago or something, and uh, and I was impressed by the ambition in it. And I, and I looked at 13th Warrior, and I don't know, somewhere around two-thirds of the way through it, I just sat back and said, Shit, what a grand adventure. What a cool, you know, that it had the basic, the essence of the grand boy's adventure that I wanted it to be. You know, never mind the things you fucked up. Um, <laughs> but see, the, the thing is, John, that most people, I mean, whenever I watch Die Hard, for example, I don't see the, what you would perceive as mistakes. I see, for me, one of the great action movies of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, what mistakes do you see? Let's, let's take Die Hard as an example. Oh, I'm not going to give that away. <laughs> <laughs> but trust me, there are loads of them. But as I said, I, I, I'm happy with the sense of ambition in it, the sense of, you know, we were, we were you know, all of us making it, um, just swigging for the fences. We wanted to make a good and decent movie. Mm. Uh, and because we had done well with Predator, we all sort of had carte blanche to go for it. Um, and we did. Um, it was not just me. Um, it was Bruce and Joel Silver, um, who had, you know, for a producer, the extraordinary courage to, um, um, follow through on my crazy suggestions of, uh, uh, you know, your terrorist movie, could we turn it into robbers and all this crazy stuff? Um, it does seem to hold up over time. It doesn't particularly seem dated. I mean, I think there will be a time where, you know, as movies become uh, a mature form, uh, that... Um, there will all be, in, in time won't matter. Hmm. Um, you know, we'll be watching movies that are 100 years old. It'll be remade one day as well, officially remade. Oh, it's, it's been, been remade, remade over lot. and over already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were so many people who would send me scripts. It was Die Hard and or something or other. And there was one guy who was really a genius. He sent a script and described as Die Hard in a building. Oh, my God. <laughs> it sounds good. Where do I sign? <laughs> Some of these guys are such fucking ninnies, you cannot believe it. But one of the great things about Die Hard, I think, for me, John, is that it is a movie in which there isn't a single wasted role. I marvel at that screenplay. Pretty much every supporting character, whether they're a major character or a minor character, mm -hmm. gets a memorable line or a memorable beat. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's Johnson and Johnson or Walt down at Nakatomi, that's a funny line. That's a memorable line. Was that something that, that you were very, very conscious of? Making it feel fleshed out and, and rounded with this great 
Well, yeah, cast. the whole idea was that it was, you know, it's a panorama of a, of a society at a moment. It's a panorama of people. I mean, I've said this wasn't a secret. I didn't say it to the studio at the time, but I said, look, the, you know, to myself, this is Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the model, which is a festival night where something happens and the world turns upside down. Okay. And all the princes become asses and all the asses become princes. And in the morning, the true lovers are reunited and they all go on with the world that is improved by the craziness of what happened the night before. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was the model I used. It was perfectly clear. Um, but part of what goes with that is that it is a, it's a panorama. There are no unimportant people in it. They are all part of the panorama of people. So the, you know, the little shit that, you know, the robber who looks both ways before, who's got all these machine guns and all this other stuff, and he's involved in stealing hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, but he looks both ways before he steals a candy bar out of the, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, You know, the giant uh, super armored bunch of cops uh, about to you know, stage a charge and they, they charge through a bunch of rose bushes and one of them gets a pricker and it hurts him and stuff. That, yes, all that shit was deliberate. You know, just uh, the, the Australians say it, call it uh, taking the piss out of, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was deliberate to, um, you know, refuse to do the normal tropes of those sort of angry action movie things where yeah. it was to make it all a little silly and a little, mm. and bring it down to a human scale. Um, and we were making fun of all these, particularly all of the authority figures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we all got the, it's like, it was cool. Everybody got the joke. I wanted to ask about Alan Rickman. It was his first movie. He's an amazing performer, an incredible actor. Uh, Joel had a how wonderful, did you get that performance out of him? Um, um, good casting director, and she was aware of Liaison Dangerous, uh, which is where everyone first saw Eric, I mean, Alan, um, and um, insisted we get hold of him. We did. Um, such an odd thing. You know, he had discovered this character doing liaison dangereuse because he was a really good actor. And everybody wanted him to do that. And he spent the rest of his career trying not to do that, trying to be the nice, gentle, pleasant man that he really, in fact, was. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of a, a, you know, a tragedy of, of uh, commercialism that, you know, because he went from doing us to doing the same things as the sheriff of Nottingham and all mm-hmm. that nonsense. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to do different sorts of things. How did you direct actors, John? Because you worked with some powerhouses. I'm sure Sean Connery isn't a picnic or wasn't a picnic at the, at, uh, on, on certain days. So how, how do you... No, he was all right. I yeah. mean, he didn't suffer fools easily, but um, he tried not to be a fool, and he got along fine. Um, yes, <laughs> he scared me at first um, from his reputation or whatever. And about the second day, I worked with him. At the end of the day, he said, good night, boy. 
and you know from my family that was um uh, a kindness and and an endearment actually um and i knew i was okay sean was uh, a tremendous professional uh he's really actually very good and paid a lot of attention to it and he loved being around people who knew he loved movies was good at it um and he liked being around people who had new ideas and so uh, you know we were moving a camera in ways that uh no one no americans were mm-hmm. at that time mm-hmm. um and we would build scenes in ways that no americans did you know i never shot master medium and close up i had a moving camera all the time um i had a you know the camera was an active narrator in the stories um and he loved that he loved doing that because it was new something he'd never done before and never seen it and he just he ate that up and so he had a great time doing it. he had a wonderful time doing it and he was a tough old bird i've got a picture of him you know i did a movie with him um down in the jungle mm-hmm. uh, and we spent i took an entire crew and worked in the top of trees 200 about 150 feet in the air for two solid weeks um and nobody got hurt but we all learned to function 150 feet in the air. And I've got this picture of Sean Connery sound asleep in the crotch of a tree, <laughs> waiting, waiting for the next shot to get set up and he'd go do it. We had another thing at time when we were, we were um, shooting Red October and um, it was a rush to, to, we started shooting at dawn because we uh, the sun was would ruin us we needed clouds and the only way you're going to get clouds very early in the morning and uh we were shooting this thing on a boat and we came in and uh, you know we're all just beat to shit from the rocking and things and and you know and and in my personal style uh, of working with a crew, I picked up one of the boxes that had to get off that friggin' boat and get, get down to a truck and move. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right now, we had five minutes to get this done, and it was a big deal to crew get it done in time. So I grabbed the box and walked. Sean saw me pick up a box. He picked up a box. He walked too. He's carrying camera equipment off the boat. Fine. <laughs> you know, he liked that. He liked that we were that aggressively egalitarian yeah. and that, you know, um, and there were no airs on it or no, no nonsense. We had work to do. We did the work because he was from, you know, common, normal absolutely. Scottish working class folks. Milkman's son from Edinburgh, he was. Yeah. So, absolutely. Well, John, I, I wish you all the best and I hope that we get to see a movie from you or, <sighs> or something from you soon. From your mouth to God's ears or to someone with a lot of money. <laughs> absolutely. John McTiernan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, it is time for some movie news. Shall we start with the big one? Shall we start with Batgirl? I don't know what you mean, Helen. There's no film that I can see on any of the release lists called Batgirl. You must have made some kind of mistake. I'm sure I heard that they were shooting a Batgirl, or they had shot a Batgirl film with some very talented yes, directors and, and very talented lead and star. finished and it. That it ex- exists somewhere. I'm pretty sure I read that. Release the Batgirl cut. 
Yeah. So, well, that's an interesting wrinkle. We'll get to that in a second. So this is the news this week that Warner Brothers' uh, planned release of The Batgirl has been, it looks like, permanently shelved uh, to provide a tax break, along with, and people are, I'll be honest, slightly less concerned about this one, Scoob 2. Justice for Scoob. Justice for Scoob and for Batgirl, ideally. Um, This is the news that Warner Brothers' new chiefs have uh, decided to that the films are not going to make enough on HBO Max or in cinemas uh, to you know, meet their price tag and that they would be better off doing a tax write-off this quarter by shelving them permanently. My understanding, and I am not a tax lawyer, thank God, <laughs> is that by doing this, they cannot subsequently release them in any form, either on streaming or in cinemas. So this is a permanent locking in the vault of both of those films, both of which have been shot and uh, in Scoob's case, we're told is about 95% complete and Batgirl was certainly at the test screening stage so didn't have completed effects but had completed its shoot. Reports on how well those test screenings went vary. Uh, Some studio executives, you know, in an attempt to presumably justify this position, uh, are saying that they were terrible and they were bad. Others are saying they weren't bad screening results. They were soft, which is what you usually get with unfinished effects and everything else. But it is a big uh, kick in the teeth for everyone involved in making the film. It was shot mostly here in the UK, uh, up in Glasgow, obviously directed by Adil and Bilal, who we know from Ms. Marvel, uh, starring Leslie Grace, Michael Keaton, Brendan Fraser, and uh, many other good people. Um, So yeah, this seems to be absolutely the business versus the show of show business. Mm. I couldn't believe this when this news broke. I came out of the cinema, had obviously had my phone off through the film, and I did like a double take when I saw why Batgirl was trending because it just didn't compute that that was a thing that's possible. That like a film that is basically done, you hear of things being scrapped mid-production or having to change hands. Obviously, has happened with um, with Solo. We've seen all kinds of different types of behind-the-scenes wrangling, but I don't think I've ever seen something where a film is like fully shot and it's just. It- Gone. It's happened in the past. Now, there's certainly much smaller scale kind of independent films. Had like I know the the Miramax. There are a couple of films. I'm not going to name the one that I'm thinking of in particular. Uh, but I know one that I did early interviews for, and that never came out. Yeah. Uh, again, no idea. I didn't realize this tax writer thing was a thing, though. Like this yeah. is a this yeah, is a revelation. And there are, there are things like this. And you, look, you usually hear about studios taking a tax write off on a big loss. I mean, Warner Brothers did on Justice League on uh, its original release, but it's not usually a reason not to release them. So yeah, it it, it happens. But this is a this is the most naked example of this kind of profit before movies uh, that I certainly have ever heard of. And and it's worrying uh, what this means for Hollywood going forward. Mm. I I would be worried if I were in Warner Brothers and trying to attract talent to the studio. I'll be honest. Because they, I mean, they got a certain amount of bad press over the whole HBO Max release during the pandemic, wasn't it? That Denny Villeneuve was obviously very, very upset when they were going to put Dune day and day on HBO Max. Uh, and there was a lot of hoo-ha there. So I don't think that helped them from a filmmaker perspective. But this is worrying. And I think, you know, I understand that studios are a business. They're there to make money. That's what they do. But it feels like this, which is not a, it's not a small thing. It's not a low-profile thing. It's something with a very big, very passionate built-in fan base. And... I don't know. Like it seems like a really strange thing to do. I'd be fascinated to know. Like so, the early reports were that it just quote unquote didn't work, right? Like, so they're obviously saying they don't think the film is good. Now, obviously, 
that doesn't normally stop studios releasing films. So there must be something no, more here. It does seem to be just the economics. I mean, because the, there was a variety report going into a little bit more um, detail on mm. the economics of it. Highly recommend reading that, people, if you're if you're interested in this wonkery. But basically, they were saying it's it's the money. It's the money. This is a ninety million dollar film. It was meant to be seventy five. It went a little bit over mm. budget. Um, some reports say it might come out closer to hundred. That's very cheap for a superhero film. Yeah. But a a lot of money for a streaming release, I guess. And the the thinking is it wasn't going to make its money back just on streaming, but it also didn't have the spectacle to work as a big studio box office release. And I think the, the complicating factor here is the uh, is the basics of, of box office economics. Apologies, I wrote about this in my book, Women vs. Hollywood, available at all good bookstores. Um, but just back of the envelope maths, it costs, let's say for a $100 million film, it's going to cost at least as much again worldwide to release it, to, to publicize it and promote it yeah. in the usual fashion. At least as much as again, possibly twice as much. So you're talking breaking at least $500 million worldwide to make a profit on your $100 million film because you only get about half the box office receipts. Obviously the cinemas, et cetera, take, take a cut as well. So the thinking was... It, I guess they decided it's not going to make enough at the box office to justify releasing it. It's also not going to be valuable enough on streaming to justify putting it on streaming. It is worth more to us as a tax write-off. I wonder how, but that is a horrific way to think about it. It is. But how do they how do they quantify what it's worth on streaming? Like that's got to be a really weird bit of algebra. Yeah, it, it is. And I that I don't I cannot answer but because no one i think who is not up to their eyes in you know tax law and and studio accounts yeah. and as we all know student studio accounting is a dark and terrifying art uh neither bill and ted movie has ever made a profit apparently forrest gump to the best of my knowledge still has not broken even uh in studio accounting and several of the harry potter movies last i heard were still in the red so you know the studio accounting is is a black art yes it feels like studio accounting exists solely so that people with back-end deals don't get any money but uh i couldn't hey. possibly comment on that and of course that's a very cynical position to take. Um, but yes. One other thing uh, that I have read, because there's various reports from all of the LA trades. Uh, so there's, a, I think there's a deadline one and a variety one as well. One of the other ones that I read added that beyond the financial implications was potentially just this general sense that I don't know if you guys know this, but um, I, Warner Brothers don't really seem to have a plan for DC. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I know that's not come across in any of the movies and it's been very, very solid and very together. But um, no, they, it seems like this new regime uh, in Warner Brothers Discovery, they are having a total rethink of yeah. how all the DC, DC stuff is working. Actually, um, on that point, I do have a list of everything they've cancelled since the merger. Mm. Now, it's mostly TV shows, but they have cancelled Raised by Wolves, Close Enough, Gordita Chronicles, Made for Love, Chad, Full Frontal with Samantha B, Three Busy Debras, Joe Parra Talks with You, Naomi, Legends of Tomorrow, Snowpiercer, The Wonder Twins film, Scooby Holiday Haunt, Haunt and of course Batgirl. And it's notable that there's various DC projects in there. So we also got the news this week that The Flash is coming to an end. So that brings the Arrowverse to an end. All the CW shows, including Legends of Tomorrow, was on that list. 
There's also the Wonder Twins movie that was going to be a DC thing that is now not. Uh, we got the news this week, uh, sorry to jump ahead, but mm. Ben Affleck's Batman is now back in Aquaman 2, reportedly replacing an appearance from Michael Keaton's Batman, who was going to be in Batgirl and also in The Flash. Who the hell knows what's happening with The Flash? But it seems like there might be a bit of tug of war at the moment of who is Batman in the DC universe? Do we need to simplify this stuff and cut it all down? and present one central thread of DC films, it feels like there's a whole kind of sea change happening at Warner Brothers in how they handle those characters and that what they wanted to do with Batgirl maybe doesn't align creatively with what they want to do with DC going forward. And the sad reality of it is that rather than taking the expense and the effort to kind of tweak those things and fix those things, it's easier just to write it off, which again is a depressing result. It's very depressing, but also like there is... A, they already have another Batman, at least, because they've still got Pattinson on the board. B, there's no reason they couldn't release Batgirl and then go, okay, that's the last of the old regime. Now we're into a completely clean slate. You know, so I feel like this only goes so far. It is, of course, a big Hollywood tradition that the incoming green light guy, if you've ever read the um the William Goldman books about about working in Hollywood, he has a whole thing about the the green light guy, the one guy at the studio with the power to say yes or no to a movie. And there's a you know there's a, a an old tradition that if your film was greenlit by the last guy and then a new guy comes in, your film is probably doomed because the new guy has no investment in your film because he won't get the credit for it. So why go ahead? Because if it's a success, it won't help him. If it's a failure, it won't help him. It seems to be that, but on a larger scale than ever before. And that's, you know, not great. The thing that strikes me is that I'm generally on the side of when a film is out, to an extent a film doesn't owe you anything as an audience, that level of maybe fan ownership of things. It's a tricky line to tread, but it does feel like in this case, and with what's happened here, that it does feel like a bit of a broken contract with with filmgoers with and probably with the people involved in the film on a literal level but this i think especially when you get into comic book stuff and it's playing with characters that people love and getting people excited about this casting and about the fact that they're doing this film and then to kind of take it away mm-hmm. it, it just feels it feels really wrong on so many levels it feels like a a breach of trust with audiences who are invested in these films and who are part of the very valid cycle of, of keeping those films going yeah it's 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 not a great time however it is not look we, we have to hope that maybe there'll be a change of heart that maybe something else will, will come into that play like a batarang it will return but like a batarang it will return and also particularly that all the the cast and the crew involved get credit for having made a film and get to, you know, go on to bigger and better things that we actually get to see. Uh, Because uh, this is a real bummer, frankly, for everyone involved and um, our sympathies go out to them. Okay, do we have anything maybe cheerier to talk about that might cheer us up? I have something cheery, Helen. What's that? I have something cheery. On the 21st of August this month will be Pilot's 200th episode (sighs) that we are doing live at the King's Place London and it's going to be very, very, very exciting. Uh, You can come for the day, you can come for the evening or at a special discount, you can come for all of it. Um, We've not officially announced any of the things that can be happening, so I can't actively say, but I will say there are some exciting people coming. I will say you will get to see a whole episode of an upcoming TV show. 
and a good time will be had by all. I'm still in negotiations to get some of the more difficult, deverish people locked in. Helen O'Hara, in particular, has not confirmed. It's my uh, father's birthday weekend. Neither has, uh, looks at notes, Chris Hewitt. But I am reliably informed that they may make a cameo appearance at some point during the day. Ben Travis will not be there, but let's not talk about that. It's my uh, birthday weekend. <laughs> I care not, Ben. Respect the pilot. Uh, but uh, tickets are available now. Do head over to the King's Place website or go to my Twitter feed at James C. Dyer where it is the pinned tweet and come and join us. I'm not sure that qualifies as movie news. James, it does, Helen, because two, you see, I'm, I'm spinning it because we, as we mentioned on this podcast, won Best Live Podcast at the British Podcast Awards for our live show. And since I've completely ripped the Pilot 200 show off the Empire 501, it is like a bootleg version uh-huh. of an award-winning podcast. So it will be brilliant. Not news, though, because that was last week. Yeah, okay. Anyway, but we do have movie news, which we should talk about. Better. We should, we should. Uh, for example, uh, there is a new issue of Empire out. Is which there? Is, I know. And it's got House of the Dragon on the cover, the Game of Thrones spin-off that is coming all too soon now. Uh, but also inside we have, what do we have? We've got Andor. Yes, we have a massive feature on Andor, which looks so flipping exciting. That new trailer that dropped this week for Andor as well. It does look good, doesn't is, it? I have been oh, saying yeah. for a while now that the the stuff that they showed at, at Celebration and the way they talked about it at Star Wars Celebration... So, sorry, Ben, were you, were you at Star Wars Celebration? I don't think I've mentioned, think mentioned that before, that. but yes, I was at Star Wars <laughs> Celebration and had the absolute time in my life. Uh, and the way that they were talking about Andor, honestly, this I think it's going to be pretty brilliant. And that trailer... Um, that trailer looks is great. Unbelievable. It, like, so I have been traditionally quite down on this show. Mm-hmm. I have maybe mentioned about it because I have traditionally found Andor to be a character who was not the most memorable thing about Rogue One. However, and I don't know whether it's just because this feels like the anti Obi Wan Kenobi. Like, Obi Wan Kenobi was a show that cost a fortune but looked like an Amdram production because that volume thing just ruined it for me. Like, because it was so obviously volume. And because this is off the volume, and it's like, ooh, locations, actual places. This feels cinematic, it feels epic, it feels glorious, and the tone of it feels different. Like, it feels edgy. Like, I, I haven't seen the show, it may not be, but it really looks like something I actually want to see. So yes, I'm massively looking forward to this now. Yeah, that's a, by, by the way, we should say, obviously, yes, the trailer, as Ben mentioned, came out this week. If you haven't seen that, do take a look because it really gives you some of that scope and some of that scale. And, you know, a little bit more of an edge. It's still a Star Wars show, but you get to see a little bit more of what the Empire does when they're in charge, which I think is something worth maybe talking about yeah. today. And what we have in the magazine is this uh, massive feature talking to Tony Gilroy, who is talking about the fact that this is a political thriller. He sees it more in line with the Bourne films and Michael Clayton and his other stuff than uh, your general Star Wars project. Uh, Also talking to Diego Luna and Fiona Shaw and Genevieve O'Reilly, who are all in that series. Uh, So that's in the magazine. We also have a big feature on The Woman King, talking to Gina Prince-Bythewood and Viola Davis uh, and a couple of the other cast members as well for that massive historical epic about the uh, Agoji warriors, the uh, Dahomey Amazons Amazons, uh, from the 1800s, who were this formidable fighting force. Uh, So we have that. We have a reunion of Flight of the Concords. Nick spoke to Jermaine Clement and Brett McKenzie. Uh, They got back together, well, on Zoom, but for the first time in a little while, and we got them together for this incredible, colourful photo shoot, uh, which if you love that show, if you can recite all the lyrics off by heart, you're <laughs> going to want to read that interview. It's a wonderful, wonderful it thing. It is, you might say, business time. It's business time. 
I'm the mother flipping. He's the mother flipping. <laughs> I don't understand anything that's being said right now. Ben, you got it going on. <laughs> I got it going on. It's almost like we've buried the lead there, though, because on the front cover of this month's magazine, we have a show, a little show that I'm a little bit excited about. Game of Thrones, House it. of the Dragon. Yes. That is epic. And it's a very exciting feature written by Dan Jolin, who speaks to everyone involved in that. Matt Smith, Paddy Considine, Emma Darcy, uh, Olivia Cook, and everyone else whose names I've forgotten at Risa the moment. Fans. Yes, Risa fans. So many people. Lots and lots of wigs. Lots and lots of dragons. Fire and blood everywhere. Uh, I am I'm very, very psyched about this. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about that show now. I think uh, genuinely, <laughs> having read that feature, I now have an idea of what this show actually is. Yeah. And it sounds really, really cool. It's a sort of pre-Civil War war show. I think it's going to be good. Also dragons. Also dragons. So 17 dragons. dragons in the show, nine in the first season. All nine with distinct dragons. personalities. And yes. that was one of my favourite things that comes out of the feature. He's discussing the personalities of the various dragons. <laughs> it's got to be done. One of them's a grumpy old grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to meet that dragon. We also have um, uh, a, a feature on Scott Adkins, the British action star um, on his, his career so far. We have Samuel L. Jackson is our gods among us this month. We have have um, Gangs of London season two, a brand new look at that. We have uh, a look at I Am Groot. We have Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. That's all in the news section. I cannot leave without mentioning that Chris's section includes the piece he's been dying to write for 25 years since the film came out, Event Horizon with director hmm. Paul W.S. Anderson. Is do you there. see? Do you see? <laughs> I, I do see because it's in the magazine. Oh, good. Um, also, the Northman's in there. Inside Out gets the masterpiece treatment. We talked to Terence Davies. All this and more on your newsstand right now. House of the Dragon, in depth. Go and get it. Also, Chris's other ultimate feature, we did a Sam Raimi ranking this month. We did. We did a big old Raimi rank, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It was, it was. And not as contentious as I thought it would be when he said he was putting all 14 films joint number one. Somehow it all worked Somehow out. Somehow it worked out. Um, but yes, this is, uh, this is uh, that's the big news really for us at least. But there is other news in the world of movies. There is, although controversially I'm going to say we're going to have to skip through most news because, just pulling back the curtain a little bit, we're going to get thrown out of the studio very soon due to bookings, so. So, aside from the sad news of things getting shelved, we also have good news of things getting made, or at least remade. Two 80s classics are getting the remake treatments. Uh, it was announced this week. First of all, Selena Gomez is attached to a re reboot of Working Girl, uh, which is very exciting. If you haven't seen the Mike Nichols original, it's a fantastic film with Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver, and Joan Cusack. Um, Sigourney Weaver got an Oscar nomination for it, deservedly. It's fabulous. Um, but I'm really intrigued to see what they do with it in this kind of modern update. And Selena Gomez, if anybody who's been watching Only Murders in the Building will know, is really good fun. And I think quite good casting for the sort of, basically the kind of um, working class girl from Staten Island who just wants to make it on Wall Street, at least in the original, um, and gets there by essentially pretending to be someone else. So that should be fun. Also on the remake shelf, Jake Gyllenhaal and Doug Lyman are working officially now on a Roadhouse remake. This is wild. This is in incredible, isn't it? Yeah. What? How? And he's like, a, he's like an ex-MMA fighter who gets a job as a doorman and then there's stuff going on. Yeah, he's called in by an old friend to be a bouncer at his club because there's like trouble yeah. around. But like, he's just too good at fighting, man. And he might kill somebody and rip their throat out if he's not careful to manage his own feelings, dude. You yeah. know? I don't... 
see Jake Gyllenhaal in the role, but then I don't really, apart from having literally seen it, see Patrick Swayze in the role as he originally played No, it. and and do you know what? I would maybe be like Jake Gyllenhaal, but having seen Southpaw, I don't know, at this point I feel like, do you know what? I wouldn't start a fight with Jake Gyllenhaal. No. At all. I mean, I so, wouldn't either, but I'm a nice person. Fair so, enough. Yeah. Uh, Taylor Swift might, but uh, <laughs> hey, Ben, you can't say stuff like that. Uh, no, like, like he was terrifying in Southport, so actually I think it'd be quite good. Now, the question is, of course, will he will he rip someone's heart out of their chest with some kind of claw move, as Patrick Swayze basically does in he Roadhouse? He rips their throat out of their oh, throat. Oh, it was a throat, it's wasn't a it? Throat he tears rip. his throat out. I'm thinking of Mola Ram. You are. Yeah. Very different person. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I guess the ripping, they have that in common. Yeah. Um, there was also big zaddy news for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2. Dun, 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 dun. Zaddy news with Helen O'Hara. <laughs> oh, Holt McCallany uh, is joining, as is Nick Offerman. Now, I don't know what they're going to be playing. My guess is men in suits. Yes. That's what they usually play. Nick Offerman has big man in suit energy. Yeah, he does. And don't they have a man in suit vacancy because of Alec Baldwin was in the last one and didn't his character get killed off in Fallout? And he was he was the man in suit in that film. So got to get some more men in suits. Yeah, this is it. And McCallany, who of course people may know from Mindhunter, and if you don't know him from Mindhunter, watch Mindhunter. He's fantastic in it. Uh, but he'll be the Secretary of Defense, Bernstein. He's great. Great name. Not Bernstein Bear. Hmm. Anyway, uh, and Nick Offerman, meanwhile, owner of the best mustache in Hollywood history. Uh, we don't know who he's playing yet. So, but he's going to be in there. Yes. That's the main thing. So that's really good news. Um, other news, uh, people who we like reteaming, Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese are reuniting after the film that they haven't quite released yet for naval drama The Wager. This is the story about basically survivors of a shipwreck who turned up and were like, oh, we're the only ones who survived. Thank goodness. And then a second group of survivors from the same shipwreck turn up and went, no, those guys are freaking mutineers. They're terrible. Don't believe a word they say. We've got the true story. Isn't this the plot of the first two seasons of Lost? I mean, honestly, I, I gave up after season one, so I don't know. <laughs> These are the tailies then, the ones that turn up and then they, okay, I get it. Yes. Will there be a smoke monster? I can only hope so. But it's set in the 1740s and uh, off the coast of Brazil and off the coast of Chile. And there's a, it's basically a trial movie by the British Admiralty. So fascinated to see that. And of course, their next film will be Killers of the Flower Moon, which isn't out yet, but which I, I cannot wait to see just to understand its budget. Um, and also, very happy news. Everything, everywhere, all at once, passed $100 million at the global box office. In in this multiverse? In, I believe, this multiverse. Ooh. Not like all of them combined. No, the hot dog fingers one, it didn't do so well. <laughs> that is a shame. I thought it, it was, was really going to catch was on because there. they couldn't handle the tickets for the stubs to get into the films. Of course, that's, of course. That's and the Daniels as well have announced a, they've got a five-year deal with Universal uh, to, to make weird things. Hooray! Which, yes, please make more weird things. I mean, I, with a universal budget would be great. Yeah, I hope this just means that they have the freedom to make weird things and won't be just pushed into a box and taught to do fast movies, much as I love a fast movie. Who doesn't love a fast movie? But Daniel's fast movie. No, that's all I can think about. Oh, family. Family. Just imagine trying to drive with sausage fingers. Oh, anyway. Some might argue that Vin Diesel has already mastered that. But anyway, let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> yes, we should finish up with the very sad news, uh, however, oh. that um, Nichelle Nichols yes. died this week at the age of 89. She was, of course, Lieutenant Uhura in uh, Star Trek, the original series and, and the films, and was just an absolute shining beacon of inspiration, both on screen and off it throughout her life. Uh, she inspired, directly inspired 
numerous women and and people of color to join NASA. She was named as a big inspiration for Mae Jemison, for example, the mm. first black woman in space. And she was uh, really important, I think. You know, her 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 place on that crew cannot be underestimated. Martin Luther King, for God's sake, was the man who asked her to stay on the show when she was f- thinking of leaving. You know, she she was like, look, this is becoming the Kirk and Spock story. I'm not getting much to do. I just sit there and say who's calling. Um but he was the one who convinced her to stay on the show. He was like, you are playing a non-stereotyped, beautiful, strong, intelligent, respected black woman. That's what we need to see more of in the world. You know, stay there. It's important. And I think it has been. I think history has shown that it's been really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Very sad news. Um, so she didn't do as much outside Star Trek as I think we would have liked to see her in, but she was always really good fun. Of course, in Futurama, playing herself again. Yes. <laughs> but even things like Snow Dogs and White Orchid and Are We There Yet? She's she's always a good time when she turned up. So Nichelle Nichols, who died this week at the age of 89. Time now for one final guest before we move on to our reviews. And it is, of course the star of Prey. Amber Midthunder made her mark with TV shows like Roswell, New Mexico, and particularly in Legion, but she's really breaking through now with her turn as Naru, the Comanche hunter who faces off against a dreadlocked bastard from another world. Uh, Chris spoke to her recently about all the challenges involved. Please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Amber Podcast by the star of Prey, Amber Midthunder. How the devil are you? Did you say the Amber Podcast? No, did I say the Empire Podcast? Oh, I, said the I Empire you said Amber. Podcast. I was like, are we renaming the whole podcast just for me? We might as me? well. We might as well. Let's, let's go for it. Well, but Amber is very excited to be on the Empire Podcast. You could change your name to Empire. I'm just saying. I mean. Or we could change our name to Amber. I guess. You'd have to take that we'll up with swap. my parents. I didn't choose this. <laughs> they did. That's a very, very good point. And of course, you know, that's 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 go back into how you got into acting let's start there because because yeah. was it was it always meant to be that I don't you know. were going to be an actor was there any any other path in your life because yeah, your parents I definitely i actually at one point thought i was going to be a professional mma fighter <laughs> um really yeah i grew up in a I how does that work people often are like oh yeah your parents doesn't make sense but like no really i feel like they kind of suggested every other thing to me and then they just kind of like sat on the secret of like what they do and they were like eh, I mean, whatever um people rebel against their parents and they re- that re- wasn't even it backwards. no actually my parents worked out at a gym um and there was like brazilian jiu-jitsu and mma and there was a kids class and i started doing the kids classes and i was really bad at it and then i got my first belt stripe and like i don't know what happened but it like lit a fire in me and i all of a sudden got really good and i was like i think i finally just like really felt like there's something worth investing in and then i like got really into it and i like, spent a lot of time doing it and i started teaching kids classes and like all like through like over a year like i did it for years um and so and then like because it was also like Brazilian jiu-jitsu just for kids, but then, you know, adults did MMA. And so I would like go to like amateur and like pro MMA fights of the people at the gym. And I was like, oh yeah, this would probably be my future. Oh, wow. Bloody yeah. Hell. Which worked out nicely for this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess. Uh, and just, just to clarify, so when you say Brazilian jiu-jitsu for kids, this is pe- kids being taught how to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. This is not jiu-jitsu that will come in handy if you're attacked by kids <laughs> and you can... Send them yes, off. this is just not to... against army of children. Okay. This is creating an army because of children. I think that day is going to come. By the way, when they rise up, and they take <laughs> that's over. your version of the apocalypse. This is, this is it. It's like Skynet going self-aware. Okay. It's a bit like you know the kids, like children of the corn. Shit, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. To you, it's not zombies. It's children. It's children. Yeah. Got it. Do you, you have kids? To, uh, we're about to. Okay. Good <laughs> so... thing for your kid. <laughs> you must teach Very your excited. 
Teach me the ways of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, but it all came in handy, I yeah, guess, for I, Yeah, it did. For so all that to say that, um, no, this was not an obvious. I think knowing my personality, it was kind of obvious because just like playing pretend was just my favorite thing in the world. Like mm-hmm. before that I understood, like when I was really little, like four and my dad would get like auditions, I would memorize all of his scenes um, just like for fun. I don't know. I just thought it was like really fun. I loved like exercising my ability to like memorize stuff. I don't know, it was just like a nerdy kid, I guess, and like would memorize like my favorite tv shows and like just repeat them over and over again and stuff like that so i feel like you look at that kind of stuff and you're like oh yeah it seems obvious but then yeah but no i mean there was a bunch of different options like i also was like a makeup intern for a long time and i thought i was gonna do makeup and like all kinds of different things so no i mean like i did like small i did like a few small parts when i was a kid but like really searched every kind of other thing and then when i was like 17 i decided like oh no i'm gonna move to la and act so what was the what was the the driving force? What was the imperative for you that that made you think, okay, that's it, acting, acting's what I'm going to do? It just became clear. It just felt like there was nothing else that I that affected me the way that acting did. Like I just I think it doesn't matter that like there's that like in this kind of present day the way that it is structured, like acting is a it can be a career, you know, that you can like if you're fortunate enough like pay your rent with, but like it has not always been that way. And I feel like no matter what, how it shaped out for me, I would be acting in some capacity or doing that just because I really enjoy it. Mm. And, uh, and and so Prey comes along. Mm-hmm. T- talk me through that, that audition process. I mean, uh, the movie was very secretive. Uh, mm-hmm. How secretive was it during the audition process? Did, what, did, how much did you know what you were going up for? I um, knew that it was a film only about like a, Comanche like a young Comanche woman um who wanted to be a hunter and I don't even know if I knew the exact time period like I I don't know if that was decided at the time or if I if I had that information um but I only had like two scenes it was a scene between me and the mom and the, me and Nadu's mom Arika in the teepee um who's now played by Michelle Thrush and then mm-hmm. um Dakota Beaver's character Tabe so there was another scene of them like by the by the fire um, and those two scenes are still in the movie very, very different now than when I had originally read them, but they stayed the same for a long time. And then that was in like February of 2020 and then it disappeared because of COVID and then came back and I heard about it and I was like, what is that movie? And then, um, <laughs> cause it had been gone for so long and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, yeah, the Comanche yeah. one that I know nothing about. Yeah. Um, and then kind of started again and then I think got like new materials or something. And then eventually somebody told me like quite close to like the last audition, like, oh, this is Predator movie. And I was like, what? Oh my God. And then I was like, how's that going to work? And like went through all the questions, you know, that everybody I think has cycled through of like, what, how would that, what is that going to look like? How is that? What does that mean? You know? Yeah. Um, and went through all those things and then, yeah. and then read the script and then I understood. Okay. So, so at what point was the script given to you? When you, when you bagged the role, when you, when you had it or? um, Right before the last audition. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, so at that point, everything's becoming clear to you, and you know, I have to, I have to ask because obviously, the Predator is such a huge part of pop culture. But the first movie came out what ten years before you were born. Mm-hmm. So, growing up, was it a big thing for you? Was it something that you were <laughs> vaguely aware of in the background? I would say that one. <laughs> yeah, choice yeah. number two, please. <laughs> yes, door number two. Um, 
Yeah, it was more so I think I was aware of it and like I've been saying this with pride, but I realize now it's kind of embarrassing. Um, I've been I was aware of it more in like a pop culture sense Mm -hmm. that it like gets, you know, but it is, I think, like solidified and how iconic it is that it's like the lines from Predator get used in other movies now, like so often or it's like memes or just references and jokes like constantly. So I feel like. You know, it's so embedded into stuff that like going back and watching all the movies, I was obviously aware of Predator, um, but I didn't know like how much of it I actually was familiar with until like really sitting down and watching them, which was really fun. Yeah, it's interesting. Like get to the chopper and all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you ready to be memified yourself? Oh, God. That, that's going to that's gonna happen. It's going to happen. It's probably happening right now. Gosh. Um, <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> I mean, this is not a movie in which you can say, get to the chopper. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But, you know, the, the people are, are going to take lines of dialogue from this Dan film. Dan said that, they, like, that there were a lot of jokes floating around of like, haha, chop her or whatever. But, oh, God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that he ever seriously considered that. Yeah. Um, no, he actually did try. That's how he tried to tell me that I had the job was he called. I mean, he FaceTimed me. And there was like a lot of stress around this FaceTime. Like I had somebody called me and they were like, you're, you're going to get a call from a number, pick it up. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, and I don't, I like surprises, but I like to be surprised by them. Like, I don't like somebody being like, you have a surprise coming. At 3.33. You know, like that was like too much information to be a surprise anymore. I was like, okay, now you just have to tell me what it is. So I was very stressed out. Yeah. And I got a call from a random number and then it was Dan. And I was like, oh, this is either going to go good or bad. <laughs> um, And he was like, if you had to go somewhere, I was like, oh, my God, what? And he was like, if you had to get somewhere, but you couldn't go by land or sea. I'll ask you this question. Hang on a second. Is he the Riddler? What's, what's, okay, yeah, please. Your, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this with you. Okay. If you had to get somewhere. Oh, God. By air. Yeah. And you couldn't go land, sea, or legs. What would you do? Oh, for fuck's sake. What would I, if I had to go... Mm-hmm. What if would I you take? By air, but I couldn't go land. Sea. I guess you kind of already know the answer. This is stupid. I worked backwards. Space, space, space. I don't know. What's I gave it away. Okay, say I said hang glider. Hang glider. And then he was like, "No, it has an engine." And I was like, "Oh, a hot air balloon." Which now, yeah, I was like, "Oh, that immediately does not have an engine." Um, a bit fire, you know. So he was like, "No, you're supposed to say get to the chopper." Oh because my you're god, Arnold. Yeah, and I was like, "Thank you." That's it. <laughs> Yeah, and I had that same reaction, and then I was like, oh, "I failed." And then it's I was like, your way of telling "Oh," me. <laughs> so not quite what he had in mind. I think not like the dream scenario of how that would go, but that was how he told me um, was via an iconic line, See, I <laughs> which I should a, have known. I thought it was a genuine riddle, and I was going, "Is that what is it? What is, what could it be? What, I was how could you do it?" Very confused. He yeah. did a similar thing to Dakota. I forget what Dakota's was, but he also did the same thing to Dakota, and he also failed the riddle. So at least you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like one of us was the one who got it wrong <laughs> we both didn't get it right oh man oh, yeah. i feel so ashamed so ashamed right now but uh but did you because you know because dakota i think wasn't born either whenever the first movie came out mm-hmm. uh i'm not even sure was dan born yeah he probably was when the first movie came out yeah so he did, has a great yeah. story about like oh the does first he? Predator. Yeah. I, just, I just spoke to him like an hour ago we didn't even talk about really? that really i'm gonna drag no, him back you in missed here a great story yeah could, could you give me the, the cliff <laughs> notes version give me, the, um, give me the cliff notes <laughs> I, it's something about that like he was a he was a young kid on a bus listening to like all the older kids who had just seen it describe the movie and he was just like enthralled by the like depiction of the movie through other kids 
eyes and like wanted to see it. And then there was like a scene in the movie that got described to him that wasn't in the movie. And then he was like obsessed with like making that, I guess. And then that's why we're That's here. his origin story. Yeah. That's it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, the, the sort of super villain's origin story or film director's origin story, if, if you will, in this Dan case. But I remember exactly where I was when I saw Predator for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was far too young to see Predator. I shouldn't have been allowed to watch it. But nevertheless, I did. And it printed itself on my brain. Uh, I guess, did you guys have like a, a group viewing of that movie? We should have done that. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> at one point, I think, in like, because we're all. We all stayed in the same hotel, like all me and Dakota and all the boys and and like eventually the trappers and stuff. And at one point we all had a movie night and I think we we watched AVP. Um, oh, that's a bad choice, Amber. That's we, a bad choice. Because we had all seen Predator. So we we're trying to work. Our way, I don't know. There wasn't really a structure. We should have <laughs> we should have done it like that. See, I need to hire myself out to people to like plan mm-hmm. movie nights mm-hmm. on production. You this could be a new thing. Of things. This could be a grift. You could do white noise. I could you do white noise. Do... By the way, we were talking before we came on mic that I could, I'm available to do white noise. We'd be like, yep. if you need to sleep. There it is. Was that you or a machine? Don't know. Don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Who's to say? But uh, but I, I am available for booking. So just uh, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about the about the films. You were in a hotel when, when the movie's being shot. You're not uh, out there in the on the landscapes of oh yeah of Can- oh you're out okay so there's there's a lot of that as well I mean we slept in a hotel at night yeah well you shouldn't have been allowed <laughs> is what I'm saying um no we but yeah I mean basically I mean I feel like mostly I slept in a car because <laughs> we would we were very far away <laughs> from the hotel so I would like get up in the morning sleep in the van right wake up be there okay be there so long oh go to bed in the van wake up go to my hotel um but yeah no we were out like in all kinds of different parts of the wilderness outside and around Calgary um, in Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. And my favorite was we were shooting on Stony and Nakoda Reserve land. And I am Nakoda myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not Stony Nakoda, but they're, you know, related. And I grew up around like Southwestern tribes. So um, it was cool to be around like and in an area where there were people who had a similar culture to me or, or shared that kind of stuff. So that was like that whole environment was really neat. Absolutely. And uh, did, did, that aspect of the movie must mean so much to you uh, mm. uh, as well. You know, the, the, the fact that it's, it's so focused on the Native experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for just like a number of reasons. But I mean, even like my personal experience of making the movie, like I've never done a period piece before. Um, and I've never worked with a large indigenous cast before so to get to be in a film where that was like we started shooting all the comanche camp stuff so just to like come to work for the first time and like be in like my outfit and see everybody like that and like in the landscape and there are teepees and stuff it just was like very it was like very moving um to have that experience and then just also very comfortable to be around like so many other native people um, and then also there was like an internship program and so there were like native crew and like that was also cool too. So I've never, I've never been around that many native people at, at work. Um, and that was like just very, very special. Uh, and, and did that make it easier for you to plug into uh, Nauru's journey as well? Because it's very much about her fighting for recognition. It's very much about her without giving too much away, obviously about, you know, wishing to be seen mm-hmm. uh, and recognized as a, as a person in her own right. And did that, did that aspect of the, of the movie, did that, did that give you something you could, you could take and feed into the, into the character? I think definitely. Well? And probably just like it changed 
um, the environment, you know, for me just as a whole, like having that experience of like spending that much time up north um, was just like a part of it just like, you know, I'm sure that it had no option other than to like bleed into what was happening. And then it was kind of a very real feeling like the it was kind of a very serendipitous way that we like shot the movie. Aside from the fact that we the first scene we almost shot was the very end. We oh, okay. almost shot the last scene first, but <sighs> we ended up shooting the last scene in like week two or something, which still okay. felt wild. But aside from that, um, you know, we started with the Comanche camp and then we kind of moved into a lot of like solo stuff and and like trapper stuff and then we got into like the predator stuff so i think even just that kind of followed the feeling of like oh right she's like at the camp and she's with everyone and then she journeys off and goes by herself and you know even that just kind of felt you know like honest to you know the movie obviously Mm. so so at what point does the predator enter your life as as an actor and and what's that experience like um, I saw, I mean, it was just so interesting because I saw him for the first time, I think by accident or like not on purpose. There was like some sort of like show and tell or test happening or something with like him like out in the woods. And I just kind of heard like these murmurs and people were walking away and I was like, <laughs> what's going on? And I was like, I'm just going to like sneak into the woods. And I was like, looking and people were like walking and I was like, what is happening? Like toward trees and stuff. And then. I was like, oh my God. And I saw it and I literally go, I can take it. (laughs) I can take that. Like, I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, And then he's he's what? Dane's what? 20 feet tall, 30 feet tall, something like that. He's uh, massive. He's a, he's a small six, nine, six, nine. Okay. Oh, I could take him. He's yeah. Yeah. Easy. Absolutely. Sweep the leg. Take that. Yeah. Just. Sweep the link. Thank you. Yeah. Brazilian jiu-jitsu comes back around. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is not about strength. It is about leverage. There you go. Okay. There you Absolutely. Go. I mean, it's probably also helpful to do strength, to be strong. I haven't, you know, yeah, done Brazilian screwed. jiu-jitsu since <laughs> yeah. I was in okay. high school. Yeah. But still. But I would just get behind you and let you fight just him and then the I go, sweep the leg. concept. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and then, of course, I was just mostly, like, also then mesmerized by, like, the just like the artistry and the detail of the suit and the head and everything because at that time i also didn't like the mysticism of like how it all got onto a person's body didn't like that veil had not been lifted you know i just saw like a monster in front of me and i was like wow um and it was so neat because it's like it's all you know i'm not acting to like a tennis ball on a stick which is good yeah looking at like a real the predator in front of me you know with like the teeth and the and the eyes and like the skin color and they put this like goop on him that like when he touches me it's gross and like it was just all very real um so like that kind of stuff i just was like then i was just like very fascinated by it and like kind of taking it all in and i had a lot of questions and you know that kind of stuff did you do that thing that uh, sometimes actors do when they're playing the protagonist and antagonist in a movie like this and just give each other a wide berth? Or are you at craft services with Dane going, hey, Dane, how's it going? He's like, oh, hey, yeah, not too bad, not too bad, from his little neck slit. I should have told Dane through. not to talk to me. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, no he- <laughs> eye contact, please, Mr. Predator. I'm sorry, can you go that way? Um, no, no, no. I mean, it's funny because, yeah, the mysticism was very much broken quite quickly because he, it's very uncomfortable. The suit is very uncomfortable and it's very hot and small. Um, so, like, he would not, he, also the way the head was is that he, it sat on top of his head 
So he had little eye holes in the neck and then the head somehow was like facing upwards. So he had to look at the ground for the head to look forward. So he couldn't see. So it was very uncomfortable. So he would like take the head off and then have the suit zipped open. And sometimes it was like even folded at his waist like a wetsuit. Right. Okay. And he loves food. So he would just like always be eating. Like that crafty thing is not a joke. Like he would always be eating. Um, so very much it was like, this is like a guy in a suit on a movie set. And then we would like it going and it was like, okay, you like, there's literally just like a zipper in the back of the suit. Right. Okay. So it was like, it oh, there's a the zipper illusion. and like, <laughs> yeah. But then it's like, you, you know, we're getting ready and we're like on set and then it's like, he suits up and the head goes on and there's a, a an animatronic one that's run by like three or four people or something to like make the mandibles move and stuff like that. And make it roar and look around and all kinds of things so like then that happens and you're immediately like oh my god this is crazy you know <laughs> sounds amazing well listen and listen, we, we talk about food there and i know you have a lovely bowl of fruit salad to get to yeah. so i'm gonna let you get back to that but <clears throat> but promise me one thing if there is a prey sequel and you know not to give too much away but if there is a prey sequel and you are involved in that and dane is involved in that as a predator yeah can you please at some point during the shoot put a kick me sign on his back <laughs> just just do i thought it. you were gonna say tell him not to talk to you no 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 absolutely because the, the new the movie been, new the, rules buddy absolutely and then sweep the leg yes exactly there you go well Amazing. thank you amber mid thunder absolute pleasure thank you that was fun Okay, on to this week's film very quickly. Uh, first, we feel the need, the need for speed, because we're getting on a bullet train with Brad Pitt. Okay, so this is directed by David Leach, one of the co-directors of the original John Wick, who has since gone on to do things like Deadpool 2 and Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. And uh, this is unsurprising uh, for the director of John Wick, co-director, uh, to tell the story of a bullet train full of assassins all offing each other in this big old tangled web of violence and destruction. Uh, so at the centre of it, you've got Brad Pitt, who's playing Ladybug. He's an assassin who's trying to be a better person. He's been going through therapy. Uh, and he has this very simple job to get on a bullet train in Tokyo that is bound for Kyoto. Uh, he has to get on the train, get a little briefcase and get off the train. And that's it which would be fine, except all the other assassins on the train have a stake on the briefcase, have their own plots going on, and it's a big old mishmash of things happening. But even though this is directed by, yes, someone who worked on John Wick, it's more of a kind of farcical comedy almost on this train with all these interweaving stories of all these other assassins, including Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry, who play Tangerine and Lemon, respectively. I think I got those the right way around. I keep getting them confused. <laughs> They're a couple of Cockney mobsters uh, who are also, they have their own kind of reason to be on the train. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry's Cockney accent occasionally hits the spot. Quite often, sadly, doesn't. But he really gives it a good go. Aaron Taylor-Johnson is brilliant in this film. He's so much so fun. So fun. Um, and he also actually really brings some heart to it as well, uh, which is much needed. Uh, so also you've got Joey King, who is, uh, again, on the train. They're all on the train. Well, I can yeah, say, we we've say got this character, yeah, this there's character. There's lots of people on the train. They're all yeah. on the train. And uh, as you'd expect from this sort of film, it is really fun and the action is great and really kind of it really pops it's a very colorful film it's kind of got a lot of energy to it it has a bit of tarantinoisms in the fact that it's kind of talky 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 violence violence uh and then bits of early guy richie 
stylistic touch points of, as well of like here's a character freeze frame on them and bring their name up in neon on the screen yeah um so it's got loads and loads of style to it and i enjoyed that a lot but it's not really got anything beyond that style which is fine it's not really going for it but it is like fun sugary empty calories but with a lot of panache yeah i think that's fair i had a blast um there's a lot of of color and pace to this. I really enjoy comedy Brad Pitt, and I feel so like do we don't see mm. enough of him. And I really, really liked him as the lead in this. Um, and yeah, but but Brian Tyree Henry and Aaron Taylor Johnson, what a pair! I want them in everything together from now on. They're fantastic. Well, not everything. Obviously, they have their own great careers, but but like they were really, really good together in this. Um, yeah, I just had a blast. Yes, okay, you're completely right in saying it's empty calories, but you know. But they're so much fun. Like this feels to me like like binging pick and mix. Do you know what I mean? Empty calories, but they are good empty <laughs> calories. I like, I came at this polarized, I would say, the office a little bit. And I think it has critics as a whole, but I had so much fun with this. I think it's stylish. I think it's exciting. Some of the musical cues are fucking brilliant. So many big names in this. Some mm. built, some not, but so many big names in this film. And I just think some of the sequences are inspired. I will say that some of the people you expect to have great action sequences maybe don't which yeah, is surprising some of the people you don't expect to do so I guess it balances out um, I think the, the, maybe you could argue the third act has the sort of the slight whiff of reshoots rewrites and re-everything to it which is maybe a bit of a shame but nevertheless I, I, I really enjoyed this I thought I, you know it's a lot of fun at the cinema so my one other criticism is that it's a film that is set in Japan that uses lots of Japanese cultural signifiers and all sorts of things, but then centers on a bunch of like non-Asian people, which it just, it just rankled on me at points because then you've got amazing people like Hiroyuki Sanada, who is like sidelined for the whole film. Karen Fukuhara from The Boys. I kept waiting for her to kick into action and spoiler alert that doesn't happen she has a tiny role here Masioka from Heroes it has all these cool people in it who I was just like why didn't you get stuff to do but what is done in the film I thought was a lot of fun yeah that's fair so we should also talk about our you know theme of the day Predators and in particular this new Predator film Prey and yeah review it now come on <laughs> Well, do that. All right, fine, fine. Yes, this is Dan Trachtenberg's follow-up to 10 Cleverfield Lane, which he made six years ago. He's been doing a few things since then. He's directed some episodes of The Boys. Uh, But the man knows how to make a movie, and I think this kind of shows that off. So Predator, as we all know, John McTiernan's classic 1987 movie, which we have never mentioned before on this podcast, uh, has had a number of, shall we say, ill-fated sequels. We've had Predator 2, we've had Predators, we've had The Predator. But this one is a scale back when it goes about 300 years to kind of American colonial era and Amber Mid-Thunder, who you've already heard from, she stars as Naru and she's a Comanche hunter who, you know, in a very patriarchal tribe has to prove her worth as a hunter by, well, in this case, hunting a predator. But the thing with this that works really well for me is it feels like a reimagining, almost feels like a reboot as much as it does a sequel. Like it's it's the first film reimagined at one sort of lower text. You don't have old painless and ridiculous cannons everywhere. It is her with a knife, her with a bow, her with a tomahawk on a rope, which is genius. And I would argue that that first film, that Predator movie, is the most over-the-top, machismo-dripping male thing that's ever been in cinema. I would agree. And this is completely not that. You've got a female lead, you've got her brother who is the war chief, but is also very sensitive and caring and supportive of her. And I think their That's relationships Dakota are really healthy. Beavers. That's the go-to beavers, yes, as Tarbe. And it it really works. And actually, there were a few things that I had from this going in that kind of surprised me. And one was the use of revealing 
The Predator. Let's just say that you think you know what this film is and it wrong foots you in a way that I'm not really going to go into. But I will say that it's not quite The Predator as we know it. And I think the use of The Predator in this is extremely well done. And I think it breathes new life into not only a film franchise that we've all thought was pretty much dead, but also a creature who I think had become quite uh, prosaic through overuse. So I think actually it deserves credits on, on a number of levels. I mean, she carries this film. just with, She's a ball of energy all the way through it. She dominates everything. Every scene, the fight choreography is incredible. Phenomenal. Like it's John Wick esque at times, which is amazing. And the, the 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 way they make that tomahawk on a rope work is genius. The Predator has upgrades to its its arsenal as well. Has all kinds of new martial weapons. Doesn't have a plasma caster because obviously plasma versus arrows is just unfair. There's no sport in that. Uh, but really, really enjoyed this. But the only thing I will say which disappoints me is I got to see this in a cinema because I am lucky and they showed it to me in a cinema. Most people will not be able to get to see this in cinema because it is going to Disney Plus. Now that's great for. Disney Plus, but I ultimately feel this is a film that benefits so much from the big screen, and that is a bit of a shame. So if I was one criticism, it would be that. But I I love this, and I think it is effortlessly the best Predator film since the original. I would absolutely agree with that. Very, very hard agree. I would also say I, I did there were a couple of things that I thought were very slightly overplayed. There's a there's a theme running through of prey and and prey and predators that I was like, okay, I get it. You don't have to keep mm-hmm. doing that. Okay, okay, I got it, I got it. Okay, um, okay, okay. Uh, so I find that a little bit much, but but overall, I thought this was really really clever, and I want to see more of this. If you're going to do, if you're going to keep relying on franchises that we've seen before, at least have the courage to reinvent them and do something as ballsy and as different and as inspired as this, and then give us another Predator, another Terminator, another Alien, whatever else. But at least have the the guts to do it with this kind of flair and ingenuity. And also, again, you know, it's about, you know, it's, it's like what I always say about diversity. You, it, This is not diversity for its own sake. This is diversity that gives us something we genuinely haven't seen before that genuinely feels new and different. And that's really, really important. Now, we do have one more film to review, but Ben, I know you have to run and do an interview. So we're going to say goodbye to Ben right now. Goodbye. Also, Predator, no, Prey, what's it called? Prey, yes, it absolutely rules. It's right. so great. So great. So that is four stars then for Prey. Thanks, Ben. Right, what's next, Helen? Okay, and super fast, we have to talk about Luck, which is the new animated film that is out from Blue Sky. It's on Apple this week. All of the promotion for this would have you associate it with John Lasseter, the former head of Pixar. It is actually directed by Peggy Holmes. Um, He is credited as a producer, and I think they very much want you to think he's brought that Pixar magic with him. For my money, he has not. So this is the story of Sam Greenfield, uh, voiced by um, Eva Nobathada, who is aging out of the foster care system, uh, is striking out on her own for the first time, is worried because she's always had bad luck. And is desperate to help Hazel, who's a younger friend of hers, at the foster care home, find a permanent family. She stumbles upon a black cat, uh, which is a bad luck thing in the US, called Bob, who's voiced by Simon Pegg, and ends up basically following him to what turns out to be the land of luck. And there's good luck and bad luck, and they make both, and they get shuttled through to the human world. And Sam just wants to get a good luck token that will help Hazel find her permanent family. Now that's lovely. That's moving. That's that's solid. That's a, that's an emotional spine to build your film around. And that stuff really worked for me. What didn't work is that the land of luck is full of cliche and it's overcomplicated and they have to keep explaining what the rules are. Uh, you know, Jane Fonda turns up as a luck dragon. Uh, a lot of non-Irish people play leprechauns. And I'm just a bit like, Are we not beyond this? Are we not a little bit more considered than this in the way that we portray these things in these movies? I mean, first of all, a little bit more sensitivity in the casting would have been nice. But second of all, 
if you're going to give me this new kind of world, you have to make it elegant and 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 make the storytelling flow naturally. And it never does. They have mm. to keep explaining things. And I got so tired of it. So, you know, it's fine. It's okay. We gave it three stars. John gave it three stars. It would feel churlish to give it less. However, this is in no way up there with the best Pixar's and don't let them fool you in the advertising to think it is. Okay. So that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Apologies that we are in a little bit of a rush today, but we're basically being kicked out of the <laughs> studio and desperately trying to finish before we are. Uh, so thank you for joining us and do join us next week for more, hopefully slower paced, film related fun. We're going to be joined next week by Ari Fullman to talk about his new film, Where is Anne Frank, which is fantastic. And only Jordan Blooming Peel to talk about Nope. So until then, it's goodbye from Ben, who's already gone. Bye, Ben. Goodbye from James. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I am off to try and sort out the studio bookings for next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.